What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Listen to Money Matters. Insert catchphrase here. <laughs> my name is Thomas, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew, who I am glad trusts me to come up with great catchphrases like that one you just heard. <laughs> you nailed it, dude. I you, told you, you it was a winner. It. it was a winner, man. What are you drinking? You still drinking that uh, truck stop Fiesta coffee? So, so because I can't stop, won't stop. Um, is, we're recording this the same day that I had like a ridiculous party last mm-hmm. night. Um, but I am gently sipping uh, the crisp from Six Point. Oh, so it is a beer. <laughs> last episode, you're like, I'm not going to drink beer because I had too much last night. But I guess that only lasts. I'm not drinking beer ever again until the next until hour. The next episode. Yeah. Hey, man. That's I mean, you got through one episode. That's a victory that, right that there. Damn right. I got me some water straight mm. up in the big aluminum. A very like, cool canister. Steel canister. Yeah. I, I'm okay with this canister. I don't like how wide mouthed it is, though. I don't know. But then again, it's like a stainless steel canister. So unless I lose it, I don't think I'm ever going to break it or need to get a new one. This right. thing has fallen off my bike. It's a little dinged up, but it's good. It works. So, dude. I am super excited to talk about what we're talking about today. And we actually had the talk, which will precede this talk before. And I was super excited for that one. Which one? Um, because uh, The future of work. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I feel like it kind of like leads into this. It's just been like things that have been on my mind a lot. Um, and uh, you you did a ton of research. And then I just like read the things that you sent me and uh, something that you didn't send me. I definitely did. did you? That. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was wondering yes. if you looked up anything that I didn't look up. It was interesting though. And, and so I, we'll, we'll jump into it. But the, the video that you sent me at the end was pretty encompassing of like a lot of the research. That's just, you out mean there. the, the curse Kassat video that I sent you today? Yeah. Like we'll, we'll link to it. And I think like, you'll get the gist of it from the conversation. I want to touch on all like the key areas, but they, they just crush it. Yeah. What's that word? Zeitgeist. Is that the word? Zeitgeist. Mm. Mm, yeah. Spirit of the age of the time. So, or I don't know if it's the right word right now, but it seems like the idea of universal basic income is something that's floating around much more commonly these days. And I think it's because we are seeing our first really, really public and big example of automation finally coming into its own with mm-hmm. uh, self-driving cars. And people are like, what What are we going to exactly. do? Exactly. Like you know, we, when broad swaths are potentially unemployed. I think this is, a, this is a big thing because the trucking industry is one of the biggest employers in the entire United States, if not the, the mm-hmm. biggest single field of work that people are employed by. So the fact that Tesla came out with the, you know, the semi and they have like full self-driving capability. And like, this is, this stuff is only around the corner has people talking about, all right, well, what are the alternatives to our current system? Interestingly, or I guess very on point, um, you know, to tie beer and Tesla and self-driving cars, the first order for these Tesla self-driving trucks, self-driving trucks was Anheuser-Busch. Really? Not yes. Walmart. So, 
No. Oh. I mean, you, you would think, but, uh, you know, maybe because individual distributors bring to Walmart, they're probably responsible. I guess that can make sense. And I mean, Anheuser-Busch is huge, so that makes sense to me as well. Yeah, I don't know, but everything's going to be automated in the future. I just learned the- first the, things you will get? I was going to say, I just learned the other day that Amazon released like a smart lock for your door that lets their delivery people go into your house and like deliver your stuff. <laughs> so, and then eventually- I think like Walmart's going to come out with one where they literally deliver groceries to your fridge. It's kind so of like ridiculous. everything's going to be super automated. Eventually it's going to be a, a drone you, that comes in a skylight in your house and fills your fridge up. You know, if you have that thing where the Amazon people can enter and leave stuff like inside your front door, you have to install a sex swing like by your front door, <laughs> something really <laughs> ridiculous that like scars them. I don't know, man. So apparently I read an article about somebody who tested it and they tried leaving like cookies and a note, like a thank you note for the delivery person. And uh, mm. they didn't take the cookies because you also you also install a security camera as well. And I mean, you know, like mm. Amazon is watching their delivery people like a hawk. Yeah. You know, oh, no yeah, taking yeah. cookies, no being happy. Just deliver the package. Especially now on. that it just launched and like it has to there can't be bad publicity. Yeah, exactly. Like the cookies were for my wife and the Amazon person ate <laughs> them. Said, Thank the you, Amazon person. Wife. They were for my wife. <laughs> or the cookies had something in them. You know, like kale. God mm, forbid that's right. you eat something like that. Anyway, so we have all these things that are getting people thinking like, what are we going to do when large swaths of our population literally can't compete against automation? Mm. Because we're not dealing with the simple threat of physical automation. We're dealing with um, automation that works in white collar industries. We're dealing with mm. bots that can write articles with trading algorithms that can do the job of a financial advisor very easily. I mean, heck, Betterment can manage your finances better than a human can. And I wonder if someday it's just like, there won't even need to be people running that. It just does it for you. It'll be those things that our kids laugh at. They'll be like, ah, remember that time you paid that guy to invest your money and you <laughs> lost it all? That was dumb, right, Dad? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so universal basic income is the idea that every person in your, in your society would be given a certain amount of money every month just for existing. Now, this isn't and a welfare program based on need. It isn't like, oh, you need to be making under this amount on your job to be eligible for this welfare program. It's literally just regardless of what you do, regardless of how much money you make, the idea is everyone gets a check every month. Similar to what currently happens in Alaska based on oil revenue. Wait, so really? Everyone, There's something in Alaska yeah. like that? Oh, so I did do more research. I think you did. You. Or, yeah. or some different research than I did. So, so, um, Right now, uh, based on oil revenue that comes from state lands, everyone gets essentially a stipend. Um, I am not sure if it is based on, uh, you know, amount of money saved an investor or what it, revenue is exactly, you know, in that time, but everyone gets a check. And huh. it is one of the comparisons of like the downstream effects of everyone receiving a certain amount of money, which, which we'll get to. Yeah. Um, That's really and, interesting. And like, I, there, I there, they have run. Sorry, I, was say, I just didn't know about that. Yeah, and and there's actually been a few um, case studies done. Like there was one in Nigeria. I think that you had read about in that like first article. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. There was one in in Canada, 
and there was one in Kuwait. Wasn't there one in like Norway as well at one point or something like that? Oh, possibly. I think there have um, been a few different studies done around the world. And so um, before like, because uh, I think already this universal basic income and if you just like go and Google it or whatever, uh, the conversation becomes like incredibly broad and people are talking about like, it, insanely ridiculous things that are all over the place, or or maybe not insanely di- ridiculous things, but to focus this conversation, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Thomas, but we're talking about essentially universal, like minimum basic income, like there are different types. Everyone would get yeah. Right. So the I, I think the but, main idea people think about when they talk about UBI is getting everybody to above the poverty line. Yes, which in the U.S. just and as like a kind of benchmark they're saying is a is a thousand dollars a month or twelve thousand dollars a year Mm -hmm. now what i wonder about is who defines where the poverty line is and what does that really mean because if i'm making twelve thousand dollars a year in um winterset iowa you know i'm i'm definitely not rich but if i get a couple of roommates i can actually live pretty decently like i lived on i lived on like nine thousand dollars a year maybe eight thousand dollars a year in college and that was paying for an apartment that was buying my own groceries. And like I had money left over now, $12,000 a year in New York city. That's like nothing. So that's one of the perhaps cons is that maybe, you know, a UBI uh, incentivizes people to move to Iowa or, or just mm, like know, pushes them out of, of metro areas. So like but it, it like gentrifies things- areas even more potentially. Yes. Um, and, and these, I want to talk about these maybe towards the back end okay. of the conversation, but like this, this thousand dollar, I think the, the concept is to meet like the basic needs. Right. And I read this, this thing that was really interesting and it might've been from the one that you read, but it was essentially capitalism and, and the free market works because you vote with your dollars. Yeah. Right. So I think he used so this sort is the of. example that. Okay, but it was basically like bread. Like I, right? I can't vote and, for my internet provider with my dollars, so there's definitely well, problems. But let's let's talk about bread. This is definitely one that you could vote with your dollars, right? Yeah. And so if you want bread and I want bread, we could go and we could take our dollars and we could buy bread. And the result of us buying dollars instructs the market essentially to provide us bread. Right. And then if Anna your girlfriend comes in and wants bread as well, well then the market now needs to either produce more or up the value of each piece of bread to reflect supply and demand. Yeah. And what they're saying is that it is skewed because not everyone is voting. Like maybe mm. 80% of the people who want bread are voting. And then this is just an arbitrary number, 80%. Yeah. But the other 20% uh, want bread but can't vote for it because they don't have dollars to vote for it. And yeah. so this would uh, equalize... Yeah, and on, I guess the, the you know and slightly anti-capitalist or anti-free market argument for this or in favor of this is that uh, right now the wealth gap is widening and the people who are in the upper echelons of society, number one, they don't spend the money that they make. They spend mm-hmm. a little bit of it, but the people who are rich and you know I would count myself among this group have a tendency to hold on to that wealth. For a variety of reasons. Uh, loss aversion is a very big psychological factor. And even if I tell myself I could live on, um, you know, I, I would be just fine having 
$20,000 net worth. Cause I've been at a point in my life when I had that, I've been at a point in my life when I had far less than that. But even though I know that logically, you know, I'm at a point now that is beyond that. And the idea of dipping below that feels like, oh no, I'm in trouble. So there's this idea that my net worth should be growing. And that means I'm not contributing that money back into the economy. I'm not voting with my dollars. And that money isn't going to other people. The very nature of wealth building means that you're just not spending everything that you make. Exactly, yeah. And so you know, for a person like me who has less than $100,000 net worth, maybe that's not a huge issue. But when you get people who are hoarding billions and billions of dollars and that money never gets really reintroduced into the economy, you have a problem. Because again, you have a large part of the population who that money isn't flowing to. They can't vote with those dollars and the system doesn't work as intended. Check this out. We're going to quote all of these similar to how we did with the future of work and, and hopefully and a lot of other stuff that we do. Um, I, w- I want to read a quote and then we'll link to it so you can see the, the source if you go to the show notes. But um, quote, all those dollars low wage workers spend create an economic ripple effect. Every dollar going into the pockets of low wage workers, because essentially there's and this is me paraphrasing, like they're, mm. they're spending the money. Standard economic multiplier models tell us adds a dollar and twenty one cents to the national economy. So every dollar you give someone on the bottom of the the income scale grows the economy by essentially twenty one percent. Yeah, right. Um, every dollar going into the pockets of high income Americans, by contrast, only adds thirty nine cents to GDP. Yep. So if you were to give me a dollar. I'm going to put less into the economy than because I will save some of it yeah. or invest it or whatever than someone who will spend all of it. And so yeah. it makes sense. Cause I mean, you know, if you're somebody who works a blue collar job and you're bringing home, you know, 25 K a year, you can think of things that you need that are not frivolous. That would represent a very real increase in the quality of life that you live that you would buy if you were given more money. Whereas if you're somebody who makes $200,000 a year and you make an extra 50K that year, you're probably not going to spend extra 50K. And if you did, you're not going to spend it on important things. You've already covered your basic living expenses and you've already covered the things that meaningfully and reasonably increase your standard of living. So at this point, it's like you're probably just packing it away to bump up numbers on a spreadsheet. So- if if we take away, and I want to cover the nose, and I want to cover all like the the why everyone listening is like this won't work, blah blah blah. We're gonna yeah. cover that, but if you could just like take like put your uh your academic hat on for a second, um, and just kind of go with these numbers. Essentially, if you put more money into the bottom of the economy, like. Based on all of the data we have through everything that's happened, the economy will grow because then the, the people who would have voted for bread will actually buy bread, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but if you put it, you know, top down, essentially doesn't work. The trickle down thing but, doesn't doesn't work. Right, right. Yeah. That that's a yeah. Exactly. Um so I want to go through some of the the pros, list them out for UBI mm-hmm. here. Um And one of them is we talked about, you know, you're injecting more capital into the bottom of society, which can have that ripple effect there more effectively Mm -hmm. than it does if it's at the top. Um, It can also reduce what they call like paternalism, this whole idea that the government is kind of dictating 
what you do because it is providing you money. And this is a real problem with welfare programs we have right now. If you're on welfare, you might need to apply to a certain amount of jobs each month. You might be required to take literally any job that comes to you. And people like are obviously going to have philosophical hate. differences on that. I mean, I know there are people, and there's honestly a part of my own brain that's just like, good for them. They should take any fucking job they can get because they need to work and you shouldn't be picky, right? But there's another mm -hmm. part of my head that's like, if you have the option to educate yourself, to spend a little bit more time trying to find the job that you'd be really good at, doesn't that actually provide a net benefit to society if you're not you know, working 12 hours a day doing something that's going to keep you stuck there for life and you have no idea or you have no way, no time, no resources to ever move the needle forward? I mean, there's. I think it's like a philosophical thing to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But right. the whole phrase pull yourself up by your bootstraps is ironic. You literally can't do that. That's physically mm. impossible. And I think that's kind of like the original intent of that phrase was to, to be a little bit satirical. And we have a system now where it's really easy to plug somebody in to a, a low wage job that may keep them alive for a while, but it never gives them any opportunities to move up. And that's what I think and, we want to create. We want to create opportunities for people to move up and not and, be forced into an era, uh, into a job that they're stuck in forever. Yeah, because first of all, I mean, if you're more engaged, you will just create more value. Mm -hmm. And also, one of the things that that I didn't know until until like we were doing this research is that um, if you take a job and you're on welfare and you earn a certain amount, uh, you know, you may not qualify for welfare anymore. But then yeah. the income that you're making is taxed, whereas welfare is not. And so by attempting to get a job to lift yourself out of welfare, there will be this uh, like tranche, this, this area of your income mm -hmm. as you grow it, where you will make meaningfully less than you are making on welfare, which essentially is an incentive to stay on welfare. Yeah. And then you could be like, well, they're, they're, they're lazy or whatever. But I, I think people inherently are not lazy and people inherently want to earn their own way, but if they don't have the funds to survive and do the things they need, um, they certainly can't move into that tier yeah. and, and like kind of push through because they'll be making less. So it'll be even harder for them. Yeah. People are, are, are somewhat rational, you know, and they mm. call this the welfare trap because yeah, if, if you're getting a thousand dollars a month, by doing nothing and you want to better your station, you want to contribute to the economy and you want to, you know, contribute something and you go out and get a job. If it happens that when you, because you're earning money actually disqualifies you from that welfare program and now you're earning less, but you're spending your time and effort working. There's no reason to work. I mean, you mm -hmm. maybe feel good about it, but if you're bringing home a few hundred dollars less per month by choosing to work, that's really tough. And actually, I remember being really frustrated by this when I was um, when I was in high school trying to go to college because so this isn't exactly a it's sort of a welfare thing uh, with the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, where you can get right. grants for college. Um, to qualify for aid, what you have to do is you have to put in your parents' financial information and your own financial information to get what they call an expected mm. family contribution. Uh, so I did this. And just like every other student, I did it, glossed over it. That's fine. They come up with that EFC, expected family contribution. And that is used to figure out how much you can get in grants, how much you're qualified to take in federal student loans, 
um, maybe even scholarships in certain cases. And then I went and I read the paper version of the FAFSA instead of doing it online one year. I read the details behind it. And what I learned is that money you earn as a student doing maybe a part-time job working at Burger King or the grocery store or something contributes more to that EFC than money your parents earn. Mm. So you are literally incentivized to not have a part-time job as a student and let your parents pay for your existence and not build up a savings because you will then be eligible for more aid, possibly grants, possibly free money. And that makes zero sense to me. Wow. I feel like you should be able to go work as a student and at the very least, that money should have the exact same contributing effect on the DFC as your parents' money, but it doesn't. It's more. And and when these things were created, like welfare and, and FAFSA, I, I truly believe that the intentions were positive, you know, yeah. and, and the, the effects of like, you know, helping people financially or, or get through school is a good thing, but in and of the creation of it and, and making all these various stipulations that, you know, like on the face seem correct, right? Like, cause if you're making more money, you know, then you obviously shouldn't get, uh, you know, more aid than someone who's making less, yeah. but it, it, it makes these perverse incentives. And one of, and to kind of like go back to the pro list, one of the pros of UBI, like you were saying, is that it removes all these stipulations. Exactly. Thomas gets $1,000. I get $1,000. Uh, the guy who makes nothing and lives on his couch in his mom's basement gets $1,000. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to do anything for that. It's like a an equal, even thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so that is something that has to be dealt with. You know, there's going to be a certain amount of people who just take advantage of the system. Um, And that's I think that's something that the human psyche is going to have to evolve to deal with because we are moving more and more towards a society and a method of existence that relies on collective effort. I mean, this Mm. is this is one of the things that makes us human is the fact that we live in groups, we rely on each other, there are informal uh, debt relationships and bonds and all sorts of stuff that are needed to build our complex society. And the more and more connections you have and the more and more people you have living in a group, the, the greater the need is to have algorithms and rules that facilitate these relationships that would exist organically within a smaller group. So, but this is something that goes against the way the human mind works because we are we operate on a reciprocity basis. I'm going to contribute to you. I expect you to contribute back. That's wired, like hardwired into our brains. And when you build these um you know these formal sets of rules and you know that these rules are causing you to contribute to people that you don't even know. And then somebody can easily point to an example of somebody exploiting or gaming that system and it's unfair. And taking advantage of the reciprocity. It seems unfair and it makes us this very visceral reaction comes out. We get very pissed off about it. But from a statistical point of view, if you look at it, that's a very small percentage of those people who are freeloading off the system. And and I, I think that's that's this like thing that uh we, we tend to focus on essentially that and, and maybe over magnify the results. And uh, it really is a very, very small amount of people that quote unquote take advantage. Um, and oftentimes 
from when they've done these studies, the people who aren't working actually just took the time to take care of kids where they would have mm -hmm. instead have been working and I don't know, stuck them in some blah, blah, blah program that sucked and wasn't good for anybody. Yeah. Um, and so to, to correct myself from before, one of the, it wasn't, um, I, I said one of the African countries that it w didn't happen and it happened in Nambia. Oh, okay. Um, and I, the results were fascinating. So th they did this and it, it turned out there were higher attendant ra attendance rates at schools. Children were better fret, uh, fed and more attentive. Uh, there was a 36% drop in crime. Poverty went from 86% to 68%. And the, the, I think the most interesting like fact is that unemployment dropped. So you would think wow. that when people get free money that they would just then do nothing, right? Like yeah. you just watch un you finally watch everything on Netflix. But no, it went from 60% to 45%. Um and there was a 29 percent 29% increase in average earned income. People created their own businesses and they educated themselves. And so I think uh oftentimes like these bad actors or these perceived bad actors, it's either due to incentives or due to the inability to invest in themselves. Yeah. Like given the opportunity and the time and the money, they would. Yeah. Who wouldn't? Yeah. And of course there's always going to be your very small percentage of people who just are wired differently. They don't want to work. I, I have a friend who is like this. He's just does he, he, if he didn't have to work, he wouldn't. And you know what? One. And you know what? That's fine. Okay? And it's fine because we face a dilemma. We face a choice. It's we you know, it's either you live by this principle that everyone has to contribute their fair share uh and that leads to very real consequences because it is incompatible with the society that we're building, with the automation that we're uh you know bringing into the economy or you say, "All right, well, given the reality of our situation, maybe some of those reciprocity ideals that we had in the past are incompatible with how we live now. And so we're going to be okay with a certain amount of people taking advantage of the system. And you know what? I think at the end of the day, you don't feel bad because that person is still alive. Maybe you don't like them very much, but you still have built a system that for the grand majority of people works better, gives them more opportunities to do and the kind of work they want and enables the them benefit. to work. Yeah, it's the right? net benefit. Like, because if if like 80% of the people are doing better and 20% are taking advantage, and I don't think it would ever be that drastic, yeah. like you can't focus on just like hating that 20% because 80% are doing better. So like overall, uh, it's been a positive change. Yeah, exactly. You know, if I, if I dice two onions on my cutting board, I can do it faster than if I dice one and then I pick every single piece up and I throw it in there. Yeah, a couple of pieces are going to fall on the floor and I waste a couple of little tiny chunks of onion. But- I'm making dinner faster, you know? Right. So you always have to think about like, it's very easy for somebody to point to the the bad examples, especially when mm. they are examples that are particularly um, persuasive or particularly inflammatory to the certain, certain core human fundamental drives we have. So we have to think a little bit more mathematically here and a little bit more holistically here. Um, and, and also, but wait, before you go to the next one, I just want to like say real quick that, 
I don't want, I, like, we're coming out hard, I think, in favor of UBI, and I actually think it's an excellent idea, but we're going to cover the downsides as well. We're going to come out like, hard on the downsides, like, like, too. Like, don't just, like, end this because you're like, <laughs> screw these guys, like, they're too... There's just because- a couple of liberal bleeding heart <laughs> snowflakes who don't understand economics. No, we're, we're going to get to the economics. Yeah. But we're just, I'm trying to be persuasive for the pros, and then we will be persuasive to the cons, because it does a disservice to both sides of the argument if you just gloss over. Exactly. Right? Okay, so you also on on the the topic of giving people more opportunity to work in the ways they want to work. If you have UBI that doesn't go away if you work, that isn't conditional on you being at a certain level of poverty, quote unquote, then you actually give employees increased bargaining power with their employers. So mm-hmm. you can counteract inequality in that way. If you give somebody UBI and they work a quote unquote shit job, the kind of job you think people are gonna flock away from if they're given at UBI, they might actually stay at that job, but maybe because they have the option of not working, they'll say, I'll keep working for you because I want to contribute, but you have to actually give us good working conditions, you know, or pay us a fair wage. A lot of people are forced into situations where they accept compensation they know is not good or not fair for what they're doing because that's the only option they have. Mm. So that's a big thing. Uh, The thing that I love is it would provide more risk tolerance for the average person. So a few weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, actually at this point, uh, I had a conversation at a meetup in a coffee shop in Boulder with the guy who owned the coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And turned out he actually knows Gary Vaynerchuk and knows some of those cool online entrepreneurs we follow. And, uh, I had never thought about this, but he was like, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk is actually the child of some of some fairly wealthy immigrants. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, he's been able to increase the profitability of his dad's liquor store, and he's done very well for himself with his advertising agency and his social media presence and all that. But it's not like he was, you know, the poor kid who couldn't rub two pennies together before he did all this. He didn't go. He's not like the rags to riches story. He's like right. the somewhat riches to more riches story. And the guy was telling me, if you look at a lot of very successful entrepreneurs like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, that is the kind of situation that they came from. They were not in poverty and then brought themselves to becoming billionaires. They came from families where they could basically do whatever they want. I mean, Steve Jobs screwed around in college, basically not putting any effort in, and his parents Mm -hmm. supported him. Now, his parents were pretty working class because he was adopted, I believe. But again, he had that opportunity and he spent a lot of his time kind of screwing around before he really got his legs underneath him. And he was able to take those risks because he knew it it didn't mean death if he failed. And if you're somebody working a nine to five and you're, you're paycheck to paycheck and you have a family to support, you're not going to go start a risky business because failure for you means a lot more than failure for someone like Steve jobs. If you've got UBI, then you know, if I fail, well, there's the UBI there. We're not going to die. Everyone is fed. Everyone exactly. has a roof under their head. <laughs> I won't I won't cause the deaths or, or impoverishment of my family by going after this this risky venture that I would want to try, you know? And and I think that it's like I mean, I don't I don't even think this is a thought, but if it is, it's certainly a misnomer that it's just these people like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates that have these awesome ideas that can revolutionize the world there there's probably far more brilliant ideas sitting in minds of people who are simply like unable to execute on it because of like constraints exactly and so 
that we could be missing out on so many things that could improve the health and lifespan and enjoyment of people mm-hmm. if we were able to unlock these things. Yeah. And on the same note as the entrepreneurship argument, you also have the argument that there would be more opportunity for education for the average mm-hmm. person, which has nothing but good benefits. You have a more educated populace. They are more resistant to uh, despotic ideas, to War misguided populist ideas, to anything like that. They have more social mobility. They are more able to critically think for themselves, make informed voting decisions. I mean, anything that has better education for the general population, I want that to happen. Hmm. You know, so those are the pros. But there are, of course, there are cons to this as well. Uh, first, before, wait. Before we go to the cons, okay. I want to I want to talk about some like no's because there's downsides, but there's like reasons that people inherently think that this just is impossible to work. Like it just can't okay. work. Right. Um, so what, what's for, a no that isn't a con? So, so people, uh, one of the, my first, uh, reason why I was like, this is awesome, but it won't work because it's going to create insane inflation. Mm. That was like, that was like my, I, I think I had read like three sentences into the first article and I had already opened a new tab and searched like UBI inflation because I was like, great but this past can't possibly work um and it turned out like i guess i understood inflation but but i didn't really see the full picture and the reason is is uh when so so there's two things that drive the economy um well it's it's uh i mean it's i'm sorry not two things drive the economy one main thing i mean there's multiple things drive the economy but one thing uh, that's really important is the velocity of money, mm-hmm. right? And so if money goes to someone and the bottom wage and they spend it and it goes to someone else who spends it and essentially everyone can do stuff and get paid. Um, and so uh, when you have UBI, it increases the velocity of money, but you don't necessarily need to print more money in order to have UBI. Um, the money is essentially reallocated from, I don't know, welfare or, or another program. Um, or taxes it, are increased. Or, or taxes you know? are increased. And, and we could talk about that aspect. Right. But uh, uh, long story short, um, uh, sorry, I had, I had lost my thought in the beginning. So there's this thing called quantitative easing that's been happening since 2008. Where, where without going in super detail, the government is buying bonds and, and that stuff in the market, treasuries and stuff. Uh, to kind of prop the market up. Mm-hmm. And everyone said that this would create inflation um, because they're literally printing money to buy these bonds. And since quantitative easing started from roughly 2008 or whenever it started, 2009, to today, which is the end of 2017, I think it was about $4 trillion were created simply to buy things in the market. And the result is that inflation has been less than 2%. And the reason that creating $4 trillion didn't increase inflation is because for a very long time, the velocity of money has been decreasing. And because it's going to people who are essentially saving it, and -hmm. it's not going into the market to buy goods to affect prices. So they were able to do this. And so, uh, you know, we're talking about like just two levers that kind of cause the same thing. Yeah. And so if we were able, we wouldn't have to print as much money if money was moving through the system faster. 
So increase velocity and you have to create money less often. Essentially. Right. Okay. Okay. So there's that. Um, I mean, I was, I want to talk about the cost mm. in a little bit, but I want to talk about two other big cons here. So one big con is the first country that implements a program like this will face incredible pressure to close off immigration. I saw you add it to the list. I was just like, holy shit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if if everyone in the world knows that there is a shining utopia somewhere where they can go get $1,000 a month, be above the poverty line no matter what, they're going to want to be there. You know, we already have huge immigration problems. It's a huge political issue in many different countries. And I think that uh, the implementation of a UBI program is not going to ease that. It's going to increase right. it. You know, and that's a whole reciprocity rule thing where now it's like people are coming in to take your your free money coming out of your taxes and it, it amplifies that. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that's a very surface level argument. Um, who knows what happens? Who knows if those people come in and maybe they contribute still? I don't know. But that is going to be a big obstacle and it is a very real problem that it will probably face. Uh, the other thing I had in here was what I call too many mixtapes. Mm. Um, and this this came from an article that we had linked in the show notes. I uh, will have linked in the show notes. I had it linked in my research here. We'll end up with a lot more artists and poets. Now, I don't have anything against those groups, but economically, the work they do only uses up physical resources and spits out human happiness. Not human full stomachs, not human houses, just happiness. So the idea here is that with a UBI program, yes, you increase education, Yes, you increase people finding work that is more fulfilling to them, but you have a disproportionate amount of people whose work that is fulfilling ends up being work in the arts. And there's nothing wrong with the arts. Obviously, the arts provide us happiness. They provide us a reason for being um, life fulfillment. But if you end up with a situation where there's an imbalance, there's too many people creating art and there's not enough people left over doing the more difficult work of butchering chickens or you know, going through cornfields and detasseling the corn or crawling through sewage drains to get rid of, you know, grease blocks or whatever it is, then you have real problems. Because right now there is a certain amount of art in the world. And I would say that it is a fairly good amount of art. And I, I don't feel like there is a dearth of art for me to consume. Now, I'm always happy when new art comes out. But if I can't go to the grocery store and buy the food I want to make for dinner and my plumbing's not working, I don't care that there's 18 more novels coming out per right. day or 16,000 more mixtapes for me to check out on SoundCloud and tell them that they're super fire, bruh. I want my <laughs> plumbing, okay? <laughs> so that, that's a potential thing. Now, this is, this is speculation. I don't know if we have uh, examples of people disproportionately going into the arts, but I definitely know a lot of people who say, man, if I didn't have to work, I would stay home making video games all day. Mm. I almost never hear somebody saying, man, if I didn't have to go to my nine to five, boy, I would go till a field. <sighs> like, I've never heard that. It's always yeah. like, I want to make video games or I want to make videos. I'm a YouTuber like you or I want to you know, read books or write poetry or something. It's always creative expression, which is fine. I mean, it, that doesn't that doesn't not make sense. Creative expression is one of the highest callings a human can have, I think. But, uh, you know, there's physical problems that also need to be solved. You know, and, and maybe to on that point a little bit, because um, not like 
I, I think that I'm creative, but I could never paint or record a, a, a sonnet or anything related to like what is classically defined as art. And I think not with that attitude, people, Andrew, not with that. I have attitude. to try harder. <laughs> but the thing is, a lot of manual labor, like you said, tilling the field will be done by robots. Yep, and so people, you know, I, I think the whole too many mixtapes, I think that there will just be a lot more time spent thinking and solving problems and for people who are creative or maybe don't even know they're creative it just not everyone is writing music some people yeah. are writing code or yep. you know so and that's definitely a good point to bring up like if you get to a certain point it's potentially the uh or it's there's a potential that the grand majority of all that physical backbreaking work that you really need to keep your society running will actually be done by robots. Mm. You know, that's a potential. So the thing that really uh, concerns me is the transition period. Because I can say, look, we have today with our certain set of problems and our opportunities and everything we have, and I can look forward 50 years and imagine this great society with a almost ubiquitous level of automation. Everything is taken care of. Everyone can uh, benefit by the increased product, uh, productivity they can consume what is created by the systems. We can create a system that supports that. I don't know how we get there. Mm. Like, how do you achieve that sort of a society without a lot of people either starving or without really straining the society to keep them all alive while you're on the way there? That's mm. the real problem in my mind to solve. And there's also the cost of programs like this. So that's what I want to focus on now because that is probably the biggest con and the one that's most analyzed. So with the article that I read on this, um, it said the U.S. currently spends about $600 billion a year on welfare. And if I remember correctly, it's somewhere around 75 cents out of every dollar of tax revenue goes to entitlement programs like welfare, social wow. security, all that kind of stuff. It's a lot. Um, but UBI wow. at $1,000 a month for each person in the U.S. right now assuming we have 300 million people, is $3 trillion. A little more so, than double what we're currently... No, no, no that's, that's, that's six times more, just about. Or oh, about okay. five times. It's about five times more, actually. Mm. So, yeah, five times more. I was thinking of like more. a 1.2 something number. Oh, no, yeah. Mm. So most people don't want their taxes to skyrocket to pay for a, a uh, quin... Is it quint? Yeah, quintupling of the federal budget for entitlements. You know, where does that money come from? And the the other thing is, if you're just wanting to completely replace the welfare programs we currently have with a UBI structure. So, you know, you do that. Okay, now you've, you've freed up some of the capital you need for UBI. I think that's the doubling one. Um, What's the doubling one? We're like uh, welfare, Medicaid, blah, 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 blah is like $1.2 trillion. Or, or so, or something like that. Mm. Either way, like say, say you want to have the most simple UBI program possible, where you get rid of all welfare and you replace it with everyone gets a thousand bucks a month. Mm. There are people who need more than that because they have medical conditions, or you know there could be a, no a number of other reasons. Mm. So either you have to set the bar for everyone at the highest level that is needed, which would be wasteful. Or you need a UBI program that simply supplements other welfare programs as well. Or I guess the other way around. You have welfare programs that supplement your, your UBI, which is even more expensive. 
So you come to the question of where does that money come from? Now, maybe we can force all the big corporations to pay more in taxes or we force them to pay for the data that they take from us. In fact, there was one um, there was one proposed, I guess, alternative or solution to this problem where, yeah, you, you just basically say, uh, Google has to pay for all the data they take from you. So mm-hmm. you get a check from all those companies that steal your data instead of from the government. That's, that's maybe one way to do it. So that's a thing. The other thing that I wanted to bring up as a, as a potential con, and I don't wait, know wait, if wait, this wait, is hold, a con. Hold on, before you like truck through the the part um, where like taxes might increase. Uh, oh yeah, there's there's this interesting thing. Um, so because UBI obviously wouldn't be taxed. Uh, so if there was a flat tax of around forty percent, they, they're estimating that would be sufficient. But due to the really? way that it's structured with UBI it would effectively reduce the taxes of 80% of the population. So 40% is like an extremely high number in our eyes, but because already the first 12 is not being taxed uh, and far more people are not, I mean, obviously not in the 1%. So um, it's like the extreme top that would take more of the hit. Yeah. And you know, I'd be okay with that. (laughs) Uh, but the other thing I want to talk about here, and we've seen the studies that show that people don't stop working. So that's that's definitely um, something positive to look to. But one thing that I worry about is I think human beings are built biologically to work, to feel like they are needed, and to feel like they have something that is something they can contribute to another group of people that they feel akin to. And that is needed. Um, I honestly believe that the high prevalence of depression we have in our society is caused in part by social isolation coupled with a feeling that your contributions aren't needed. Mm. I think people get plugged into jobs where they feel like what they're doing is not all that important. They get their paycheck. They go, they buy their groceries at the store. Everything is removed by so many levels We've lost our connection to a, you know, a close group. People don't live with their families. They don't live in villages anymore. You don't have this expectation that you're a part of maybe 20 people and what you're doing is going to ensure the survival of your village for the winter. It's more of like you get done with school. That path is now completed and everything in front of you is you choose it. You know, And in a lot of cases, no one really depends on you, mm. especially if you're single. You know, I, I think that is a big cause of depression. I think that, and, and, and depression is fought by feeling needed, by feeling like your contributions really matter. So if we build a, a society where automation is taking care of all of the physical work, all of the production of resources to keep everyone alive, we've fed everyone, we've clothed everyone, we've given everyone shelter. How do we fight that problem? Well, and I think part of it is you're then free to pursue whatever you want, which could be the mixtape, could be volunteer work. Um, you know, and it really is what is fulfilling to you. And I think uh, there, there's like some study, and I, I forget the, the numbers, but like essentially an enormous amount of people in the U.S. workforce are, are disenfranchised or unhappy or like completely disengaged from the work that they're doing. And yeah. I, I think it's reasonable to assume that the people that are disengaged are not being very productive. And so if you right. took this person putting 40 hours in, essentially maybe 
outputting 10 hours of real productivity and instead they work 10 hours, you know, but it's worth 10 hours and it's something, you know, that benefits society uh, could be a net positive. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I just think it's, it's, it's a, it's a problem. Mm. You know, it's a challenge that we face. And I mean, we can see examples in our current society. A lot of people who have their basic needs cared for don't actually know what to do with their lives. Mm. And, you know, maybe we can do better. Maybe we can figure out how to help people figure out what they want to do, figure out something that they can contribute to that will be fulfilling. But Thomas, we missed like, I think the one red herring. Um, okay. Aren't we describing communism? <laughs> and and isn't this proven to not work? Like it, like call it, you know, call a communism UBI or whatever. Isn't uh, isn't this a failed experiment already? So from what I know of communism, number one, its implementations in the past have been basically antithetical to Karl Marx's true ideals, mm. and you know, say in the case of the Soviet Union. Um, number one, you have the rise of a dictator. In fact, I, I believe that Lenin had told some of his underlings specifically, I do not want Stalin to be in control of this country after I die. And yet he was. Mm. Um, I, I would imagine a very similar thing happened with the Chinese communists and, and other cases as well. You have selfish humans who fight for a cause they believe in, but then when they find themselves in power, they now find themselves in the position that they were fighting against mm. and humans are fallible. Uh, and the other thing is a lot of times these, these were countries using state controlled production where the free market wasn't allowed to, uh, to build efficient markets. It was all like, you're going to build this many cars and these it's are like, pretty crappy cars. What if I don't cars. want a car? Exactly. It's like, well, right? you get a car anyways. So I don't think that, the application of a universal basic income program is going to inevitably resemble classical communism as we've seen in previous uh, regimes. I think you can do it in a way that still holds up the free market, that still enables people to produce and demand and supply the way that we've been doing for a long time, but that also gives us a safety net. Hmm. It's so not necessarily... So you definitely have some market. socialist tendencies, right? Hmm. Because we are redistributing income based on a government program. But the way I think about this is, again, it is a formal set of rules that are, are just trying to implement the same things that happen naturally in smaller groups of people. If you have a small group of people, it's not like, I went and killed all these deer, I get all the deer, right. or you have to pay me for these deer. People contribute and help each other. There's this, this whole idea of reciprocity, this whole idea of just helping your fellow man, but it's very hard to do when you have a large complex society with a lot of people who don't have tight connections with each other. And I think it's also worth considering uh, that right now, like, you know, there's a lot of people working in jobs that they hate, making not a lot of money. And there's people who are working, maybe not as hard, but making a lot of money. And, uh, you know, the people up making a lot of money are happy, uh, but it's all working. And everyone's busy, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, so like, you know, like the response is muted because, you know, you, maybe you would protest, but you actually just have to work to feed yourself. Um, yeah. What it's I think it's worth considering what happens when a meaningful percentage of the workforce just doesn't have a job, can't have a job. There just aren't jobs for them. 
you know, yep. or at least in what they're, they're classically trained in. Um, you know, maybe you're happily in the middle class. You're certainly not rich. You know, you're making like the average 55,000 a year for your household. Uh, when, you know, a meaningful amount is unworking, it, it will disrupt you and your life because they're going to be unhappy. Uh, it, it will cause strife in society. So I think part of UBI isn't like, look, wouldn't it just be super awesome to get everyone free money? Like that'd just be great guys. But part of it is, is to solve societal problems before they happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a good point to bring up as well. Uh, now we talked about some implementation. I mean, that that's the real challenge, right? Mm. You could have a much more, uh, a much higher corporate tax rate. You could raise taxes on higher income earners. Um, you know, that that's the tough part. And I'm not really sure what the answer is there, nor am I sure if this would actually work in general. I guess we, what we wanted to do here is just present the arguments for and against. And hopefully people smarter than us could figure out if it is worth pursuing, if the pros do outweigh the cons, how do we implement it? You know, I, and again, that transition period is the scary part to me. I, I found like all these fascinating things on how, like, so you would imagine like the perfect economy or society, like all resources are utilized to the maximum extent. Like, you know, gas powered cars are inefficient because of heat and a lot of the waste goes into the air and electric is just more efficient in general. So we should probably use, you know, electric powered cars because it's better, right? We're utilizing more of our resources. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of like the, the things people say is that, well, housing prices will go up because, you know, people have more money and maybe they'll move into more desirable areas or whatever. Did you know that uh, there are five times more vacant homes in the U.S. than homeless people? Really? Right? So like, oh my gosh. But, and, but, the, but here's, here's this like thing where these are people who need homes. There are homes with no people in them, but because homes cost money and these people don't have money, they're sooner going to stay vacant than be given away for free. And so yep. I think, uh, and this happens in like other areas of society as well, but you know, if these people had money, right, then they could pay the people who own the homes and the homes mm -hmm. wouldn't be vacant. And it may inadvertently fix some of these like resource allocation problems. Yeah. Yeah. The waste problem is definitely something that's very frustrating to deal with. I remember the first time I really came into contact with it was when I worked at the bakery in Hy-Vee, that, that grocery store in my town. Mm. And the people who worked at the pizza place next door, uh, next door, I mean, it, a pizza place in the store, uh, at the end of the night, any unsold pizza, they had to throw away. Which is and ridiculous. they were not allowed to give it to other employees or eat it for free or even buy it at a discount. They had to throw it away. And they would be thrown away like sometimes four or five, six boxes wow. full pizzas. And I'm like, this is huge waste. You could be giving this to your employees right now. But because you've created a rule that people have to follow because they're not given the autonomy to make a smart decision here, uh, you're wasting all this food. Mm. You know, And maybe if you did let people give away pizza, maybe they'd make too many pizzas so they could have free ones at the end of the night. I don't know. It looks to me like you're already throwing away six pizzas a night, man. Yeah. So who cares if your employees get some free pizzas? I think they're going to be happier than having to throw away six pizzas. You still lose six pizzas either way. It's just now it's going into the dump and 
That's you gotta wait up. for it to degrade and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I don't know. I think we covered this pretty well. I think we did so. too. And and look, we're gonna have a bunch of the things that we've been reading. You know, video like a vi- Thomas sent a video over that was awesome. Uh, you know, and you, you have to draw your own conclusions. And I think it's just perhaps one proposed solution among many of how to deal with what like high levels of automation may hold for society. Yep. Yeah. And increasing inequality. Mm. So yeah, show notes for this episode where you can find that video that we watched from Chris Kassat, which is an awesome channel as well as some other articles that we had uh, used for research can be found at listenmoneymatters.com slash show. So check those out if you are curious to learn more. You can also find some of our favorite resources, tools, and books that we recommend for increasing your financial knowledge at listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. So check out those resources and open up your podcast app next week to download our next episode. Until then, see ya. Later, man. Later, dude. Please tell your friends about this show.